genre. Franchiseography, the podcast that digs deep into the entire filmographies of Hollywood's biggest film franchises. I'm Scott Corelli. I'm Nick Jimenez. Today we are continuing our mini-series on the live-action films of Wes Anderson, with his seventh film released in 2012, Moonrise Kingdom. And we have a guest joining us to talk about flash floods, survival techniques, <laughs> and young love is Jody Wofford. Welcome to the show, Jody. Yay! Thank you so much. I'm very excited. Now is a good time to point out that uh, we are skipping a film. So we went yeah. last week, we, we talked about Darjeeling Limited, and, uh, and we did not cover, we are not covering Fantastic Mr. Fox because we are, <gasps> we are saving it for, um, you know, an inevitable, uh, his inevitable third animated film, and then we'll be able to cover the animated films of Wes Anderson. Mm -hmm. Desert of Rats. Yeah, uh, we will. There, there's some stuff that we ha we have to go through with Fantastic Mr. Fox when I start going into the development of this film, uh, because you know it is it, there. It is a, a a step in the journey to this film uh, hitting the screens, but we won't be covering it in any uh, large capacity. So um, apologies if anyone was uh, uh, firing up there. Their podcast uh, listening device and uh, thinking we were going to talk about Fantastic Mr. Fox this week. <laughs> Apology accepted, Scott. I'm devastated. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jody, what is your relationship to Wes Anderson as a filmmaker, specifically uh, Moonrise Kingdom? I'll just say that Wes Anderson is the light of my life. Mm -hmm. He's like probably my number one favorite director of all time. I just think he's got such a specific style and such a unique way of telling stories. Um, and yeah, I, I think I saw Bottle Rocket as like a little kid in a hotel room with my grandma and I was like so enthralled by it. And that's like, honestly, not even one of my favorites. But, I think that might be um, the perfect and, way to watch Bottle Rocket. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> exactly so much of it takes yeah. place in a it motel. Felt very yeah. fitting. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I was just like super into it. And then, I mean, like as a kid, it was like I was seeing each of his films like as they came out in theaters and I was like probably too young to understand half of them, but I was still like very gripped by them. Um, and then, yeah, Moonrise, I was definitely old enough to finally, like, appreciate the actual stories. And I just felt so in love with it. And I feel like every time I watch it, I get something different out of it. And it just brings out new emotions in me. And I think it's a really wonderful piece of storytelling. Yeah, yeah. I The way that I like to think of uh, Moonrise King is sort of, like, cohesive. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like, watching it today, I was like, wow, there's... There's a lot going on in this movie. <laughs> um, yes. just, one, yeah. one could almost compare it to an orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Indeed. All of the individual pieces come together to create a beautiful whole. Indeed. Mm -hmm. um, Nick, do you remember uh, the first time you watched Moonrise Kingdom or what your thoughts were? I going do. Going into it I, and coming out of it? Yeah. I, I saw this in, in theaters in 2012 with a, a big group of my friends and I, it was the first Wes Anderson movie that really felt like an event mm -hmm. and because there's quite a gap in time between Life Aquatic 
Every, and then, and or I'm sorry, uh, Darjeeling Limited and this. Mm. Uh, Fantastic Five Mr. Years. Fox came out. Yeah, and Fantastic Mr. Fox came out in 09. So that was a while ago, too. Mm-hmm. But what had happened was he had become such a beloved like filmmaker in to like our generation in like the gap of time that like his DVDs were circulating and it was always like on people's dating profiles and MySpace profiles <laughs> and like wedding quotes and Halloween costumes that by the time this was coming out, it was like, holy shit, the new Wes Anderson's coming out. Mm-hmm. So I remember, being, mm-hmm. I remember being really excited for it. And like, yeah, we all loved it. And it's like, it's just a, it's such a blast. It's such a fun movie, especially coming out of the, the heaviness of Darjeeling Limited and even Life Aquatic. Um, yeah. So I was, I was a big fan of this upon its release. Yeah. I, I think that like all of his films have a big heart in them, even if you have to get through a lot of cynicism to get to the heart. Um, but this is just like a big thumping beating heart all the way through. And, uh, mm-hmm. I think that's why it's looked on, looked upon so fondly, uh, much more so than a lot of his other films. Um, and you know, every, I think people like the majority of his films, but I think this is the one that is a lot of people's favorites. Um, and also I think we discussed this when we were talking about Rushmore is that much like Rushmore, you know, it tends to be a generational thing where it's like, if you're, (laughs) if you are below a certain age, Moonrise Kingdom tends to be, uh, your favorite. And if you're above that age, it tends to be Rushmore. (laughs) But both of those, it's interesting, are about adolescence. So there's something about Wes Anderson and ad- like, I guess like his depiction of the world feeling accurate to like an adolescent. Um, and uh, uh, I just I, I, it's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think he understands that ch- children are just adults trapped in tiny bodies. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's what's been in this film, especially every child character is such a fully developed, complicated character. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. even if- and when you are a kid, everything feels so dramatic and you feel like you're in your own movie. And so I feel like he does a really good job translating like all those emotions and these stories that we're telling in our heads at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah we're like something like khaki scouts is like the most important thing in the world. And like, yeah, yes. your, well- your job. Well, and, and, and one of the things that we keep bringing up, a theme that we keep finding in all of these Wes Anderson movies are characters that fake it until they make it. Um, like every every lead character in all of his movies are, are about faking doing the thing until they're actually doing the thing. Um, and this is no exception. And in fact, I, what I find interesting about this movie is it, it, it almost goes a little deeper because, yes, you have your two lead characters who are faking being adults and having an adult life and living on their own, hoping that like, well, if we just keep faking it, like we'll, we'll make it and we'll, we will have a life and no one will be able to (laughs) stop us. But you also have this, this sort of, um, I don't know, this sort of exploration of the fact that like everybody's doing that, like Mm -hmm. adult, that's what adulthood is, is like, (laughs) <laughs> you're never like an adult. Like you are, you're grown and people expect things of you. And you're like, well, I guess I have to like pretend to do this thing. And then eventually you just start doing it. And, and, you know, <laughs> you start realizing that like, oh, wait, I'm an adult now. Um, but, you know, all of that is, you, you're really just kind of thrown into the deep end of life. And that's literally what these, all of these characters end up doing by the end of the movie. Yeah. They um, all have a, a shared respect for one another. Mm-hmm. And all kind of speak to each other as peers, whether they're like children or adults. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. It, I don't know. It, it's, uh, we, we, we've talked, Jody, a few times about the, uh, the Peanuts influence of Wes Anderson's oh, yeah. world. And this was, I think, his most like Peanuts work. Totally. Yeah. Just these kids that are wise beyond their years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Having these very adult adventures and these big feelings. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it, a dog it's named one of Snoopy. A dog named Snoopy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that. <laughs> Direct parallel. Um, yeah. So I remember when this came out, uh, you know, I really liked Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, but I was... There was something that was a little removed for me uh, at the time. Like, I just wanted another live-action Wes Anderson movie uh, because I wasn't satisfied with Darjeeling Limited at the time. So when this was coming out, I was I was highly, highly anticipating it uh, just because, I don't know, it was like a new, yeah, it's like Nick said, it was like a new <laughs> Wes Anderson movie. It was like, oh my God, finally. But the thing that I remember the most about 2012 and the Wes Anderson of it all is that that was the year that he became a meme in a lot of ways, like in popular culture. It's the year that like SNL did like, what if Wes Anderson directed a slasher film? And and I think it was around the same time that um, Patrick Willems did that. What if uh, Wes Anderson directed an X-Men movie? Right. You had stuff Um, like Honest Trailers that was like a cottage industry of like picking stuff apart and noticing motifs. Yeah, like marking it as flaws or like right, right. But what, but what I was, what I was finding interesting about that whole dichotomy during that during that year of this movie's release is that it wasn't even entirely accurate. I would say Patrick Williams probably did the best job of like accurately representing um what what we're calling Phase One Wes Anderson, which is like (laughs) pre Fantastic Mr. Fox Wes Anderson, um, but like. Everyone else was just riffing on this, which Moonrise, yeah, specifically, yeah, specifically Moonrise. Moonrise Kingdom, which doesn't really, you know, in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, all of his movies look like this, but they don't like they don't start looking like this until Fantastic Mr. Fox. Like, that's the first one that is just like in this kind of absolute contained yeah, box of creativity and art. It was really jarring watching it this time in a row with all of the other ones that we've watched and just being like, no, this is a very different filmmaker at this point. Um, and, and I find that really interesting looking back on the year 2012 with all of these parodies of him that were really just parodying this movie. I had a, I had a weird thought like really early on, like, like a couple minutes into the movie. It's like it's his first work that doesn't feel like it's directed by a young man. Mm hmm. Yeah, but and there's like a professional. He's just so good at making Wes Anderson movies at this point. Yeah, that, that <laughs> he can just tell a story, and he's not really like trying to find himself anymore or reckon with anything. Yeah. I mean, I think this was a very personal work, from what I understand. Or there's a lot of personal influence in like the writing of it. Mm-hmm. But it just feels like a really tight, well told story. But it's also yeah. a comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Like ev- everything in it is so deliberate. Like I, I can't imagine being an actor on that set and just knowing like I have to hit this mark and at this point we're going to turn this way and we have to get this shot. And like it's it's just such a work of art being able to visualize all that and knowing exactly what you want each scene to look like. And I just think that's, oh, my gosh, like yeah, that, I think that's, you know, where his genius comes mm-hmm. in. It's like 
It is so immaculate. Edward Norton uh, talked about how this was the easiest job that he's ever had because <laughs> he, at a certain point, I guess like on like the second or third day of shooting, he realized that the character that he was playing was very similar to Wes Anderson. And so every time uh -huh. that they would shoot a scene, he would just turn to Wes Anderson and say, how would you say this? And then he would say it and, <laughs> and then he would just mimic what Wes Anderson was doing. So Wes Anderson <laughs> was giving him a line reading, but Edward Norton was asking for the line reading, which was like a really <laughs> weird dichotomy because you don't yeah. hear that sort of thing with actors very much. Certainly right, not yeah. one of the caliber of Edward Norton. So this is a little anecdotal, but it's kind of connected because I think these two filmmakers are compared to each other sometimes. Mm. I heard a story once watching like a Jack Black video, like those videos where he's like, here's my career. I'm talking about movies that I made. He would do that for Nacho Libre, where he would just ask the director, like he like he would just crack Jack Black up with his line readings of Nacho. So he was like, "You're making me laugh so much. I literally just want to say it the way that you're saying it." <laughs> that's great. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's fun. That's um, it's it's okay. So so uh, to tell the story of how we get to Moonrise Kingdom, first we got to start with. Uh, the reception to the Darjeeling Limited, which was uh, not great. Um, it was. It only cost $17.5 million. It was the first time that he had worked with Fox Searchlight. Its return was $35 million. So if it got like a profit, it wasn't much after marketing costs and things like that. Um, so it wasn't a huge success. And Fox wanted to make another Wes Anderson movie, but were hesitant to make something as niche as the Darjeeling Limited was. And so Wes Anderson was like, well, I've always wanted to make an animated film. Uh, and I like uh, Roald Dahl. So why don't we get Fantastic Mr. Fox and I'll make uh, an animated film. Uh, and so they were like, great, here's $40 million. So again, <laughs> every time somebody gives uh, Wes Anderson a lot of money, it definitely it tends to te uh, spell trouble. Um, the last time this happened was he was given fifty million dollars to make The Life Aquatic, uh, a movie that um, did not make its budget back. Uh, I wonder what forty million is relative to things like Coraline or Paranorman. You know, I like think other about, stop motion movies. I think that's about accurate. I think that's about okay. how much all of them tend to cost. Um, up until um, that last one that they did, which was way more expensive and ended up not making any money. Um, sure, Sasquatch yeah. Um, because the Fantastic Fox uh, animation yeah. is v kind of like, you know, it's very rude. It's it's purposefully rough, like kind of more Rankin-Bass than... Yeah, like but, but um, you know, the thing about stop motion is it's not the it's not the... Uh, I guess the um, quality, the quality the of like the models that cost yeah. the money. It's the time. Yeah, it's labor is labor. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so you know, the forty million dollars, it's spread over the course of like a three-year process of like mm -hmm. trying to yeah. make animate this film. Yeah, making um, hundreds of little pairs of loafers <laughs> for Fantastic. Actually, no, he doesn't wear shoes. <laughs> Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, See, if we had watched the movie, I would have known that. I <laughs> Nick's holding a grudge. Uh, <laughs> so I just watch it just to watch it. I don't know why I'm so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's uh, so. So. Um, so he takes all this time. He makes Fantastic Mr. Fox. It comes out. It costs $40 million plus a marketing budget of probably twice that. So we're talking, you know, close to $100 million is what 
they end up putting into Fantastic Mr. Fox with a return of 46 million worldwide. <laughs> um, and so it flopped, uh, pretty hard. And, and, you know, the thought process at the time was that it was a very mature film. Um, it's, it's not really a kid's film and, you know, it's not inappropriate for children, but it's not a movie that's made for them or really made with them in mind. Um, and so the combination of that and just like every animated film was made, you know, using CG animation at this point, a stop motion film was weird and off putting to a lot of children, I imagine. And it's paced differently than a lot of movies that they would be used to. And so it just didn't make any money. And uh, Fox was officially out of the Wes Anderson business after two films. And that left Wes Anderson in a weird position because his last three films had been financial failures. Um, and to critics who loved Fantastic Mr. Fox, they both thought Darjeeling and his last two live action films, Darjeeling and, and Life Aquatic, were kind of creatively not as good. Um, and so when he was preparing to make this movie, Moonrise Kingdom, which he wanted to be his next film, a romance, an adolescent romance between two 12-year-old runaways, you know, this was a, a a plot that a lot of studios were like, that, I don't think so, man. Like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a little weird. And so what he ended up doing was like, Figuring out the minimum budget he would need to make this movie. And that minimum budget that he de he decided on was $16 million. He was like, I can do this with $16 million. I learned a lot about miniatures on Fantastic Mixer Mr. Fox. I can take that knowledge and bring it over to Moonrise Kingdom so that I can have my elaborate sets and my elaborate world, but on a much smaller scale that I can shoot as live action with green screen and, and, and all of that good stuff. Um, and so when he came to that budget to Scott Rudin um, and, uh, and his uh, producing partner, um, they decided to independently finance the film. Uh, and so this is Wes Anderson's first independently financed film after the bottle rocket short. Um, that was the last time that he I'm had, learning so yeah, much. Yeah, that was the last time he had an independent <laughs> film. This, and so this was an independent film. In a lot of ways, this was Wes Anderson starting over creatively, starting over uh, the, tr with trust in terms of like, this is a guy who can make a return on an investment because he hadn't in a while. Um, and so he made this movie for $16 million. Everyone worked for scale. Um, and he worked with a lot of actors that he had never worked with before, uh, on this one, he brought in Bruce Willis who, you know, at this point was sort of notorious for his, uh, his like moon and sun approach to, right. <laughs> um, uh, uh, being a, uh, a creative person on set. Um, either he would, and, and I guess the, the, um, understanding is that he does a test to the director where he asks them, what kind of lens they're going to use to shoot something. And if they don't know the answer, then he does it. He basically stops showing up to, to work. <laughs> I mean, he, he basically comes in, says his lines and leaves um, because he's like, I don't respect you and I don't respect this film. And uh, so apparently Wes Anderson passed that test because he definitely got like the best of Bruce Willis. Um, this is, uh, I, I looked it up out of curiosity. Uh, yeah. This is his last good performance. You think so? 
I, I think so. I, 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 from 2012 to now, I would scroll through. I didn't. I mean, like, the red movies are fun. Mm. But I would th- say, this- I would say, I think he showed up for glass, but. Oh, you're that- right. He isn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I would, I would say he that. showed up for glass, but I, I think, okay, I think you're enough. right. I, I think it's because was what, when was, um, when was oh Looper? Looper. When was was that? Was same, I think this was the same summer as Looper. Is it really? 2012. I think it was. Okay. Wow. okay. So never mind. Looper. Oh, yeah. I meant my statement. Yeah. So well, I think this technically came out after Looper. So I think you're still. I think you're still sure. right. Um, but ever since then, it's been a lot of like him holding up a gun on a DVD box. Yeah, a lot of movies. I've watched a few. Oh. Um, because yeah, well, because uh, my my future mother in law is a big Bruce Willis fan. And we'll watch anything with him in it um, until she started to realize that he's at not actually in any of these movies uh, because he doesn't <laughs> even shoot. He doesn't even shoot his own coverage. Like, like every time you cut to an over-the-shoulder shot of Bruce Willis facing another actor, it is obviously a stand-in. Um, mm-hmm. Like the shape of their head is completely different. I mean, it's it's obnoxious. Just some guy they found on the street. Yeah, just some bald guy. Uh, yeah. Are you five? Bald? Come on. In. Are you five eight? You want to make fifty bucks? <laughs> yeah. So we have Bruce Willis really showing up to work on this movie. Um, yeah. It was really watching it this morning. The, the movie this morning, I was just like, I love this Bruce Willis, and I miss him so much. Um, but he mm-hmm. was cast in this uh, because. You know, he had written this movie, funnily enough, he had written this movie as, when he was writing this character, he was writing this character as Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> and <laughs> and it was, and, and he liked the idea of Jimmy Stewart playing uh, essentially a cop. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so then when he cast the movie, for some reason, he like decided to flip that, of like casting someone who's normally a cop playing a really nice guy who would just come with all of this sort of cop baggage of like, oh yeah, this guy feels like an authoritarian figure. Um, right. Yeah. You expect him to kind of be gruff and uh, short-tempered or like right. macho. Right. It's, it's, it's Bruce Willis. Right. Right. That's really interesting. But he's so tender. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would have imagined like, uh, to me, uh, the Scoutmaster, Scoutmaster Ward reminds me a lot of Jimmy Stewart. Sure. Yeah. I, I I think so. I I felt that way too, and I read. I had to read the sentence like a bunch of times. It was oh, like an okay, interview cool. with Wes Anderson. Yeah. I had to read it a few times because I was like, "Really, the Bruce Willis Wait. character?" And then he talked about <laughs> switching it up, and I was like, "Oh, okay, sure, got it." Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. So so you have that. You have the, the the first time he's worked with Francis McDormand. You have the first time that he worked with Tilda Swinton. Um, which wow. who's now become sort of a staple in the the Wes Anderson yeah. uh, uh, players. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the beginning of a lot of beautiful friendships. Yeah, apparently. yeah, and it, but but it uh, really goes to the sort of phase two ness of this era of Wes Anderson because you had a lot of first timers on Fantastic Mr. Fox too with George Clooney and sure. uh, uh, um, Meryl yeah Meryl Streep. Thank you, uh, Meryl Streep. So it's really... and uh, I think I think the most important uh, one of, if one of the most important collaborations from Fantastic Mr. Fox that carries over here is uh, the composer Alexandre Desplat. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh yes. gosh. Very yes. much so. Um, this is, I think, the most score yet in a Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. Very Live action. So. It makes the movie. I'm like, it, it totally enhances it. Like, it just creates such a mood. I'm obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite uh, scores to write to. 
Um, I I love playing this when I'm when I'm uh, writing. Um, I just think it yeah it has a great mood. Um, I it's just oh man this movie. Um, so <laughs> so anyway, uh, so he makes this movie for sixteen million dollars. Um, you know, a lot of walking around in the woods, and then a lot of. Uh, like a lot of the houses and the churches and mm. sometimes um, even some of the campsites, they were all miniatures and, uh, every, and, and the whole thing was shot on green screen. Um, so I, I really love that in terms of like him figuring out how to uh, get control of his budget while also not sacrificing anything creatively. Um, and I, and I think that it, it, it turns out a really uh, incredible product as a result. It's a, it's a really successful magic trick, I think, because watching this movie, you completely fall into the world and believe mm-hmm. that this is a real place that exists. Yeah. And you don't think of like, you wouldn't think that this is a movie that has a lot of miniatures or green screen, but because it feels like so, so natural. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, did they really? So they did they not send Bob Balaban out to all of those remote locations? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think they did. I think there was a, or if they did, it was only like part of one, and then they had a green uh, okay. screen behind it, and then they, <laughs> you know, put a, put something else, um, put a miniature behind him. Um, so clever. But uh, yeah, God, and he's great in this movie. What a vibe. That's that is a, <laughs> that's an addition that took way too long. Yeah, uh, Bob Balaban. You're like, how does this not have been happening the whole time? Was that the first? Right. <laughs> was he first in Fantastic Mr. Fox? Oh, that's right. Yeah, he is in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, I can't. Im- I remember his voice. I can't picture like what his animal was. Yeah, I can't mm. remember the animal, but yeah, um, I think that was the first time they'd worked together too. Again, they're all I, kind I, of varmints, a, you know. A Phase Two player, <laughs> um, <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um but yeah, the movie the movie uh came out to rave reviews and um you know, made 68 million worldwide on a 60 million budget. Less than I remember. I remember this being a massive hit, but you know, I guess when it only cost 16 million dollars, um <laughs> you know. It was kind of seen as like the sleeper hit of the summer because this was like the summer of Avengers and Amazing mm-hmm. Spider-Man, you know, but Right, right. Um, through. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it opened. It opened May twenty fifth, uh, which mm-hmm. is that's a blockbuster weekend. So um, that's really <laughs> that's really fun. But yeah, this is uh, it's it's just a it's just an incredible film, um, and I can't wait to to really dig into it. Uh, Nick, do you want to want to get us into the rundown? Sure. Yeah, we open with the Universal Studios logo, which was interesting. Yeah, um, this was um, they distributed the film, but they did not produce it. So that's okay. why it's like a focus feature, um, but it was an independently produced thing. Uh, I think Universal Indian Studios, pa- if you're listening, the theme park, uh, any part of this universe would be pretty incredible to like walk around in. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I well, I mean, you know, we did on theme park this. We did an episode oh, about right. dire- directors, and Wes Anderson Land was the one that I went with. So, mm-hmm. yeah, what a dream. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we opened with um, a house on an island. Uh, New Penzance Island, to be specific, in the year 1965. I just think it's it's so interesting that this is like him returning to America mm-hmm. full speed. Mm-hmm. And there's this there's I can't voc- verbalize a lot of it, but there's just something aesthetically that just seems so like 20th century American, like 1960s. Yeah. Without but in unexpected ways, ways that you're not used to seeing on screen. 
Well, when they when they talk when he talks about like why is this a period piece? Because all of his films have felt like period pieces despite not literally being period pieces. Right. And so, you know, when when asked like why this was 1965, he was like, "Well, it's it's the last period in America while we still had innocence." And by innocence, hmm. I mean ignorance, right? Like we were ignorant of the world around us, of all of these awful things. It it predates it like, you know, yes, Kennedy had been shot and that's the beginning of things sort of falling, but you know, the hippie movement wasn't in full swing yet of like pointing out starting to point out the problems in America. The the Vietnam War hadn't started yet. It's still like mm-hmm. about two years away. And the the Watergate scandal, which is the thing that taught us to stop trusting our leadership, <laughs> you know, is it, that hadn't happened yet. And so it is this very specific slice of Americana where there's no wars happening. Like, it's just growth. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah, like, no, no. Like you're making a lot of like growth and like innocence, right? And there's a there's like a, a decency into everyone in this movie, whether they're like opposing each other or even trying to kill one another. Mm-hmm. It's I've I've read I've read like takes on this movie that uh, theorize that Bob Balaban is kind of like God almost. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> if that's true, this is exactly the kind of world that this God would create. Uh-huh. <laughs> just this really simple quaint orderly world where everyone has a job and everyone kind of basically respects one another even if they're like at odds mm-hmm. um and like the opening like that that record that the kids are listening to at Susie's house the like Peter and the Wolf like how to build an orchestra it mm-hmm. it's this like remnant of the 50s and it sounds so lush and the crinkling of the vinyl mm-hmm. yeah it's just like really a really quiet lovely way to start the movie we meet uh Susie Bishop and her like three brothers She's got yeah. a few brothers. Yeah, three brothers. Uh, her dad is Bill Murray, and her mom is Frances McDormand, who I believe this is her first rodeo. Yes, with Wes Anderson. And yes. uh, they all live on New Penzance Island. We meet. Uh, well, we don't meet Sam, but uh, Sam uh, is spending his summer at Camp Ivanhoe. And I just, I'm in love with that tracking shot of like Edward Norton waking up and like just going <laughs> up and like the the, the latrine, mm-hmm. and everyone is. This just, is. Yeah. And this is post the American Express commercial, which was like that oh, where, right. where the whole commercial was just that one panning shot across a movie set mm-hmm. of like Wes Anderson, like uh-huh. stopping at little stations and doing things. Man, I bet there were a lot of uh, moments in the coming years. Where he's like, God, I'm glad I fucking did that American Express. Commercial. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet. I bet. <laughs> uh, I think this is one of my favorite Ed Norton performances. Yes. It, he's just so, so immediately becomes part of this Wes Anderson world and like his vulnerability and his I think he sort of I think him and Bruce Willis represent this kind of like idealized version of masculinity for Anderson mm-hmm. or maybe in general where they're like, yeah, they are like they have a lot of masculine qualities, but then they also do like, yeah, like like Jody said, like they possess these tender hearts and they yeah. they really love what they're doing and their place in their world. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I Yeah, they're so passionate, yeah, yeah about yeah, absolutely. <laughs> about what they're doing and the people that they meet and yeah, they just have this like incredible sensitivity. Yeah, like that first scene uh with with uh, the scoutmaster where they're like, "So what do you do? Like what's your job?" He's like, "I'm a math teacher." No, wait, I want to change my answer. Like <laughs> <laughs> I'm a- Yeah, I'm a math teacher on the side. I'm a khaki scout leader. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, Edward Norton is another uh quirky character in terms of uh actors, you know, he is notable for rewriting every script for every movie that he's ever acted in um, because he doesn't (laughs) think that they're good enough for him uh, until Mm -hmm. he's gotten his hands on it. Um, It's the reason why he left the MCU is because he wanted to rewrite the Avengers script and they were like, no, that's too bad. He would have had a a great time. Being, yeah. being part of that machine. He would have loved every minute of it. Yeah, yeah, it didn't yeah. Work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> definitely would have been for the best if he had stayed. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so him being in this, you know, it just, it made me realize how much I love comedy mode Edward Norton. Mm-hmm. Um, mu- much more than dramatic mode Edward Norton. He is so charming in this movie. Um, and it's the reason why, like, even though the movie's not great, Nick, I mean, we watched it together, but that Keeping the Faith movie, I can't oh, help but yeah. love it because he's just so fun in it. You know, like, it's, he, it's so, he's fun so to charming. see him in that movie. Yeah, it's it's so fun to see him in that mode. And you don't get to Jody, see him have very you, often. Have you seen, uh, I already forgot the title. What was the title? The faith. Just, <laughs> Keeping, Keeping the Faith. Keeping the Faith. It sounds vaguely familiar. I definitely did not see it. It is a romantic comedy from 2000. Yes. Even, yeah, starring uh, Ed Norton and Ben Stiller as best friends who grew up to become a rabbi and a priest. Yeah. Oh, wow. And they fall in love yeah, with the I same can, girl. Like, yeah. They, naturally, of yeah, course. Yeah, they yeah. had like the same crush growing up from childhood, and now she's back in New York, and they're like, oh, we both made a commitment to, and it's, yeah, just <laughs> a great comfort food Ooh. movie. Yeah. Well, I have a, a new assignment tonight. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'll be watching. Uh, both Wes Anderson alumni. True. Yeah. Very true. Ben Stiller never came back. That's a bummer. <laughs> yeah, right? It's always, it's hard not to look for, like, because he, if you become a filmmaker that brings everyone back, when you don't, you're like, whoa, wait, did something like What happened? Yeah. What yeah. Happened? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and Moonrise is the first Wes Anderson movie without Owen Wilson, right? Yeah. Right, because he's 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 the coach in Fantastic Mr. Fox. No, he's not in Rushmore. Oh, uh, right. Okay, yeah. And, yeah. Andrew is. Where did Andrew okay. go? What happened to Andrew? I don't know. I guess he just <laughs> yeah. finally quit. He just, just like you know what? This isn't working out. <laughs> he flew the coop. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's like the third Hemsworth brother. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so Sam's missing. We meet Captain Sharp, played by Bruce Willis. He calls uh, Sam's foster parent but at first he doesn't know that and he's like horrified at <laughs> that that this guy is just like no we don't want him to come back yeah he's not invited back he's not invited to return <laughs> <laughs> which uh brings up kind of a really important theme of the movie uh, uh both sam and Susie, in different ways are considered problem children right um, and this is something straight out of wes anderson's life when he was a kid 
he found a book on the top of the refrigerator at home and that book said dealing with a problem child and he was like well i know that this is about me and <laughs> and that that sort of uh i think that's also why the divorce affected him so much because i think in a lot of ways he blamed himself because he thought of himself as the problem child and if they had a problem in their marriage he was the problem and so i think sure. that's where all of this sort of came out of and, you know, I think there's a reason that so many kids and, and people who grew up to be quite like weird people or, you know, like find such solace in Wes Anderson's movies when they're, you know, kids like Jody, you know, of like even if we don't understand like divorce or like financial ruin, there is something intrinsic that we get about like so many of Wes Anderson's characters are like children who were too smart for their own good growing up. Mm-hmm. And we're left with they were handed this intelligence and with no idea of how to like deal with it. And so like both Susie and Sam are really frustrated and angry a lot in their day to day lives. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at this point, we still haven't met Sam, right? <laughs> He, he's like Captain Barbosa in Pirates of the Caribbean. We've yeah. like heard about him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know who we do meet, though? Uh, baby Lucas Hedges on a motorcycle. Oh, I like screamed when I saw yeah. him. I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> That's <laughs> Wes Anderson launching careers. Yeah. We love yeah. it. It's insane that this is only like five years maybe before or after, before uh, Lady Bird. And he looks like, mm-hmm. a, like, I mean, he is a child, but I don't know. That just, that trips me out, man. Yeah. It, it, it's like the gap between like 12 and 14 is massive. Yeah. Like you are a baby when you are 12 yeah. and then all of a sudden, yeah, you hit the teen years and it's like, well, there's a man. Yeah. He, he's good in this. He's, he's like, you know, he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. And kind of like what we were saying, he, he's just like this fully formed adult version of an asshole, but like a little kid. <laughs> yeah. Leading a, a, a team of sociopaths who are ready to just murder this kid and drag his corpse back. Are they sociopaths or are they normal pre-adolescent boys? Uh, It's hard to tell the difference. Yeah, it's really hard to tell the difference, honestly. Uh, Camp Master Ward, Scott Master Ward, is like doing his captain's log in his his tent. And one of my first favorite quote of the movie when he's just like, terrible day at Camp Ivanhoe. Uh, uh, we fla- we flash back to one year earlier where we I think is this when we finally meet Sam? Yes, is like when he's watching Noah's Ark per- mm-hmm. being performed at the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible set. Oh yeah, absolutely. Everyone, what a what a cool day that must have been if you were like one of those kids. Oh yeah, yeah, especially oh. on a on a church budget and like an island that doesn't even have paved <laughs> roads. Yeah, well done. <laughs> incredible. Uh. So Sam just gets up and starts wandering around like a boy would or like a kid would, you know, mm-hmm. uh, he sneaks into the dressing room and sees the uh, the birds and meets Susie. And like, you know, when you like know that you just watched like an iconic <laughs> scene, mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember thinking that the first time I saw that of like, oh, that's going to be that mm-hmm. that's going to carry over. Yeah, this is a thing. I uh, so so this whole movie came out of the fact that Wes Anderson was absolutely head over heels in love with a girl when he was 12. Sure. And this movie is essentially the adventure that he imagined, this like romantic adventure that he imagined going on with her. Uh, because he was in the scouts at this point. He didn't last very long because he's like, I'm not a camper, <laughs> but I like the idea of being one. 
And mm-hmm. Sam's a great the camper. romanticized yeah, version. Yeah, right, right. And so it's all, this whole movie is basically the memory of a fantasy of, of you know, sweeping this girl off her feet and take and like going out into the wilderness and showing her how much of a man he is and how much he knows the wilderness <laughs> and all of these things. And she would be super impressed, obviously, but she would be really into culture and would read and like books and things because that's what he was actually interested in. Um, and so that's, that's where this whole thing comes out of. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's delightful as usual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because like, as, as I'm watching this movie, it's like, oh, I do kind of relate to half of this. And that's comforting to know that, like, the adventure is also part of the fantasy, that he also wasn't that cool. Right, um, right. <laughs> but yeah, I love, I like his in, instant fixation on Susie, which is like, we don't even know what it is that he's fixating on. Because he's like, what kind of bird are you? And they're all birds, and one of the other girls mm-hmm. starts like talking about what kind of birds they are, and he's like, "No, what kind of bird are you?" And it's I... yeah, and it's but it's something about her specifically that, and it's not even like he's really getting a good sense of who Susie is in this moment. She's in a costume, she's got makeup on, but it, there's something that he is completely fixated on with her, and I find that very relatable. The thing of, like, you don't really know why you're immediately, like, fixated on someone or immediately infatuated with someone. You know, it's something very specific to your brain, <laughs> chemistry or mm-hmm. whatever it is, but there's something about Susie that he's immediately like, that's the girl I have a crush on. I feel like that's really true to childhood, too, because, yeah, you could come home after the first day of school and everybody's already got their crushes. Yeah, you don't even know anyone yet. You haven't talked to them, but you're like, this guy, he was in the back of the math class. Yeah, like, I just knew. Yeah, like, there was something about him. Yeah. And I think the casting for Susie, too, is so well done because I really do feel like there is something, like, special about her. Like, she really does stand out and she does, she looks like this 1960s movie star. Like, she just has this, like, quality about her where you are. You're like, I am interested in her. Like, I want to talk to her. <laughs> yeah, it's great casting. There is, there is like, an otherness to both of them. And, yeah, like, you can imagine, like, being that age and what you would have found striking about. Like if these are just two, someone in your weird like little town where you're like you already know everybody, yeah. Mm-hmm. For both actors, uh, Wes Anderson basically opened the floodgates and was like, "I want first time actors for basically everybody. No credits. Mm-hmm. I just want a real kid, and I want them to like have an approach to the material." And so he just ran through hundreds and hundreds of kids, and mm-hmm. you know. A lot of the times when you tell these stories, it usually uh, ends with like, oh, yeah. And then right off the bat, they met these poor people, but they're like, they can't possibly be the people. I'm going to look at a thousand more kids and then but never forget them and come back to them at the end of all of this. Mm-hmm. Or there's nobody and then they get to them at the end. And and it really was just like he just ran through all of these kids and with all with with these two specifically, they had never done anything outside of school plays. Um, and these were their first auditions and they were getting cast into like a major movie as like Uh-oh. the leads in the movie. Um, <laughs> pretty and, remarkable. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty crazy. And, uh, uh, I was looking at their, their IMDb's, um, and both of them have worked a little bit, uh, but Susie definitely a lot more than Sam, unfortunately. Um, I think well, it's, Sam... it's not uncommon with young actors that have this immediate big success 
and then mm-hmm. sort of like evens out where I mean like they're still like, they're probably both not even thirty yet. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean yeah. Oh, twenty twelve. That's about ten years ago now. Um, yeah. So uh, like yeah. They're, they're, uh, they meet in the 22. meadow. I I I love <laughs> they the can little barely moment. drink. <laughs> Right. Uh, when, after they meet in the meadow and like uh, uh, Sam hands Susie like these flowers that he but he's very like pure. She's like, oh, thank you. Like kind of like the <laughs> the moments where they break through the artifice of where they're not faking and they're just being like two kids. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. that was really affecting. Yeah, no, it's it's great. And, and they're really great. And, you know, over the course of this movie, like watching it, one of the things that I that I was really struck by, like was the similarities between Wes Anderson and Barry Sonnenfeld um, as a, as a filmmaker, like uh, just, you know, I think about like certain things in pushing daisies and the Adams family, which is what made me think about the fact of like Wes Anderson directing an Adams family movie and what that would look like. I was just thinking about that a lot while watching this. And I was like, man, that would be, that would be something. That would be something. Yeah. (laughs) He's not very, he's not particularly spooky. No, no, he's not. That makes me even more interested to know right. what that would look like. <laughs> what does he think spooky is? Yeah, yeah. Um, I picture a lot, a lot of paper of, de- He's got decor. some dark streaks. I'm like, <laughs> I'm picturing like, some dead dogs, to be honest. <laughs> well, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> well, I think I think um, not. To, you know, I think uh, uh, dog dying. And we kind of talked about this with Royal Tenenbaums. It's it's it, it has so much to do with like the end of childhood and broken innocence. Yeah, and. That's kind of a theme that he goes back to a lot, including this movie. Yeah. Um, I'm one of my favorite little details. So they go to the lake and they do inventory, which is like the most, when, when, as soon as he's like, we should take an inventory. I'm like, that's the most Wes Anderson thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> take an inventory. <laughs> a bunch of insert shots of items neatly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Susie's books. Yeah. The, the, the design of Susie's like these 1950s, 60s YA science fiction books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, these were these were all designed by uh, different artists that were friends of Wes Anderson, um, and uh, yeah, he wanted all original books because he just felt that this is a this is a fictional island, and so everything he didn't want anything to like mm-hmm. remind you of the outside world. And right, so, she wouldn't be reading Mouse in the I Motorcycle. Love that. Right, right, <laughs> right. Um, but they all kind of have a Roald Dahl feel, if you notice, mm-hmm. if you look at the all of the titles. Yeah. So, so, and we start learning more about Susie at this point in the movie, Mm -hmm. um, that she, what kind of troubled, what, what, what being a troubled kid means to her. She's the one who finds the, the pamphlet on the fridge. Mm -hmm. Uh, she says she enjoys reading stories about like girls with magical powers that find secret worlds and go on adventures. Mm -hmm. She, She sort of yearns for otherness and she kind of finds specialness or otherness in Sam but Sam kind of understands what it means to be an other in kind of a different way than Susie does because like Susie comes from more of a strong nuclear family not strong might be uh not the right but you know like a nuclear family like a mom Uh and a dad Mm -hmm. and siblings in a house right and so the way they kind of fill each other's gaps in perspective is really interesting to me something that he longs for that line of uh yeah the line where I was like yes like what 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 do you want to be when you grow up she's like Oh, I just want to go on adventures. I don't want to get stuck in one place. Yeah, me too. I I just want to go on adventures, not get stuck in one place. Like, it's just it's so charming, and yeah, and it it just it really does. It's so telling of both of their personalities, and just yeah, this this wanting or yearning for something else. Yeah, I've never, I've yeah, I've never seen a movie visualize this or articulate this, but like there's this thing that keeps happening 
where uh, uh, Susie will say something and Sam will be like, hmm, huh, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> it's very kind of a dull, like, I'm listening. I, I understood yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, and, and it's, there's also a lot of things where it's like, you know, when she, when he shows, when she shows him the book of like, I found mm-hmm. this, the pamphlet or whatever, sh- shows him the, the pamphlet of like dealing with living with a troubled child or whatever it is. Um, and he laughs and she gets really upset by that. And you're like, he's laughing because he's like, her parents don't even know what a troubled child is. I'm the troubled <laughs> child, you know, like, and, and, and I, I like that about it. It's like, he's not laughing at her and he like tries to yeah. like explain that to her. And then later when, he, when she says like, I've always really liked orphans. I've kind of always wanted to be one. And cause she's romanticized <laughs> it, having read, read them all, you know, her whole life in all of these books. And, uh, because they're the ones who get to go on adventures because they don't have parents looking for them. And he's like, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. And the only thing that she Iconic hears life. is, I love you too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and like, yeah. And Sam laughing, it is such like a, because like there's this great line where Bruce Willis later says like even I don't care how smart you are like a 12 year old boy will still stick his finger in a socket mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's but yeah he's still just like a dumb kid and will right. like laugh because he doesn't know social hasn't learned like that that could be seen as insulting and then he kind of learns that lesson that's him sticking his finger in the socket right yeah meanwhile back in uh, in the town Francis McDormand learns that Susie has ran away we get that's really that scene where Bill Murray and Bruce Willis are driving. And Bruce Willis is like, how's Laura? <laughs> Pulmer is like, how's Laura? <laughs> um, we also, we've also learned that, uh, that uh, uh, Francis McDormand and Bruce Willis are having an affair um, yeah. that is in the process of ending. Yeah, uh, how's Laura? Why are you calling yeah. her Laura? <laughs> yeah. Subtext. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting layer to the movie because I don't, really know what it adds outside of just giving the adults something to play with um in well, terms of well i think it's well, i think it's exactly what you said that they're just as lost and flailing as the children are right right yeah like yeah but i like it, that we never see it you know that it's just talked about right. yeah yeah mm-hmm. i think that that i think it's i think it's fun that it's kind of like at the end and you just imagine this love affair that they had because it's it's <laughs> difficult to imagine to be honest like oh, because yeah. they're all so stilted you can't imagine them like having an affair like it feels weird right <laughs> it seems like more of an emotional affair because like the really the only scene is like with like them kind of awkwardly sharing a cigarette that Susie sees from her her trademark binoculars right right yeah um a search party is formed uh, captain shark deputizes some of the khaki scouts uh the short one the skinny one and the one with the eye patch <laughs> lazy eye yeah lazy eye yeah they all like the khaki scouts really do feel like peanuts where like mm-hmm. they have one defining characteristic they're a little big time. yeah yeah or lost boys right yeah the lost mm-hmm. boys for sure and yeah. there is a showdown uh one of my i don't know how i'm gonna be able to communicate it listeners but one of my favorite moments in a movie ever i think about it all the time is when <laughs> the khaki scouts are confronting sam and Susie. And one of them says, like, he's crazy. He's like, you know, he's like, he's like, he's crazy. And Laura's like, maybe you just don't know him. And the kid gives like this look of like, come on. <laughs> yeah. And it's the it's like it's such an adult like, ah, like it's such great acting of it yeah. says so much, like, dude, come on. I 
I just love as as they're going out there. One of them is like, one of them is like, I'm not going to be the only one not not holding a weapon. <laughs> and, he has, <laughs> and he's got like a stick with nails coming out of it. The nails. <laughs> yeah, they know that Sam's fucking crazy. He sack tapped that kid for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. In that catch up of their year, and Susie too is 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 prone to lashing out in violence. And um, I like love that his West- foster house looks like a prison. It looks like scenes from yeah. Shawshank. <laughs> There's a lot of references to Shawshank in this movie, actually, like <laughs> the poster over the hole in the tent. <laughs> yes, we were like his like foster brothers are just like watching him do chores. They're all like in their little like I mean what I'm wearing, but like you know like like their like tank top shirts. Like, yeah. yeah. It feels a little more uniform than what you're wearing, though, for some reason. Sure. No, no. They look like <laughs> greasers. They look like they're working in a garage. Or yeah, like, yeah. Or, or in, a, in a prison, like Shawshank. Yeah. Uh, and then we get the patented Wes Anderson sudden burst of shocking violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Lucas Hedges is stabbed. Snoopy is killed by an arrow. And yeah. uh, we get another classic line uh, where Susie's like, was he a good dog? Sam's like, who's to say? <laughs> but, he didn't des- but he didn't deserve to die <laughs> uh jody there's like a thing that we we go over a lot on the series where it's like something is sad and funny simultaneously in a wes anderson movie mm-hmm. and it's like yeah it's a bummer that snoopy is dead but like yeah that's such a funny line i think that's like the only dog death where i haven't cried so props to you wes anderson for a. Uh... <laughs> making that moment yeah. a little more lighthearted. Yeah, I mean I think I think the thing that um makes it better is that we don't really get to know Snoopy very well. He's yeah. just kind of working, you know? <laughs> yeah. And he so almost looks like a ball of yarn. Like he looks like a like a little puppet. Like so you almost yeah. kind of like detach those emotions. <laughs> yeah, he's like a stuffed animal, yeah, for sure. Sure, compared to Buckley. Right, compared to Buckley, exactly. So he's less of a um, character and more of a prop. Also, the uh, and it, it's not even the last time this happens in this movie, but the violence in Wes Anderson's work is so often unseen. Yes, it's it's implied, which is so much more jarring to when you compare to Quentin Tarantino, who seems mm-hmm. to revel in the bloodshed and the violence. Yeah. He's more focused on the ramifications of violence than on the violence itself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can remember every single like I remember the dog dying in this because it is so like jarring. Mm-hmm. Right. Um or like you're not exp- and I think that's also really true to life of like childhood is this I seemingly idyllic like never you know if you're if you're fucking lucky. You know what I mean? But like yeah. if you're you know childhood can be this very safe time of like play and running around in the woods but then all of a sudden a dog gets hit with an arrow or like yeah. a kid a kid gets stabbed and that's like that moment as a kid when you're jostled back into reality of like oh mm-hmm. shit oh shit we were playing jody did you ever attend any kind of summer camp no actually i i did like a three-day like improv kind of like day camp thing in the fourth grade um and that oh, was wow. about it <laughs> but yeah i've never done like the like proper summer camp with like oh we're gonna go swimming and then we're gonna do friggin' crochet and then we're gonna put on a play yeah, I was in the Boy Scouts, um, but I've never, I've never attended like a summer camp. But it yeah. always kind of had like this mystical quality. Like I remember watching The Parent Trap and being like, "Oh yeah, that'd be so crazy." That I don't know that kind of fantasy, the kind of making a a, a world around you. I guess mm-hmm. yes. it always looks so fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you were right 
to uh, know the answer to your question. <laughs> I just, I was like, I would have heard about it by now. <laughs> that t- All those camp stories. <laughs> Crazy town. Camp Wanawata. Uh, uh, so yeah. they make it down to the lake. Uh, Bob Balaban meets with the rest of the grownups. And we learn that he, he also, in addition to being God, is a character in the world, too. He's uh-huh. like, what, a cartographer? Is that what his... uh, a me- meteorologist? A meteorologist, of course, yeah, because he knows so much about yeah. the impending storm that's coming in three days, right? And so he's like, "Hey, I know Sam. Sam, I think, is trying to recreate the native, uh, like the native indigenous people of the islands. They had like a ridiculous Disneyland name, like the, the Chick Chick Chaws. <laughs> yeah, which I think I, I, that was the first thing I thought of, Scott, when you mentioned this movie representing this kind of like innocence and ignorance." Of, mm-hmm. It's this like fancy, fantastical, made-up native tribe, you know, right? Um, but so he, right. so he's like Sam is recreating this trail, and like they're at the lake, and uh, it leads to some of like the <clears throat> the movie gets compared to like Blue Lagoon a lot, yeah, yeah, but like in a way that it deals, it's unafraid to deal with like adolescent coming of age, like sexuality, and mm-hmm. I remember being like uncomfortable watching this in in theaters for the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I it is it is so uncomfortable. <laughs> um and it like to the point where um it I know a lot of people who hate this movie and call it basically child pornography. Yeah, uh, and it made me and, because of this. And watching it now cuz I this is like all Wes Anderson movies. I haven't revisited this one. Uh Yeah. I was like, "Well, why was I so uncomfortable?" you know? And like mm-hmm. cuz what about this? This is like I think it's uncomfortable because it's so realistic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're used to like Gossip Girl and Riverdale or like Puritan, like never talk about sex, never mention sex. And like the I think the reality of this scene is is kind of what's so memorable about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, a lot of people talk about the ear piercing scene <laughs> as like a metaphor for losing her virginity. Oh, um, <laughs> Like a lot of people use that uh, to, to talk about that, um, and uh, it, so it's just it's an in, it's a weird it's a weird very honest moment in a move in a movie that is so like ridden with fantasy um, that I think that a lot of people it's jarring in the same way that I think um, violence in a Wes Anderson movie is usually jarring. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, uh, I don't think it's, I, I, I feel like it's done with care yeah. and, and I feel like it's, it's got its heart in the right place. I just think that some people just don't want to think about it or see it Mm -hmm. or feel anything about children in that situation. Um, as if it's not happening every day. Right. (laughs) Yeah. We all lived Uh, through it. Uh, yeah. Jody, is this a movie that you that you rewatch often? What's funny is I consider it like one of my favorite movies, but I've probably only seen it a handful of times. And then yeah, I, I rewatched it last night for the first time in at least a few years. And I honestly, I that scene did kind of get me again, where I was like, oh shit, like I I forgot about some of this. Yeah, like it it is awkward and uncomfortable, but yeah, but it does feel very true to life. And like you said, it it is kind of a break from this fantastical and whimsical world that they've created. It's like this very like raw and real moment, which yeah, which does uh create some some weird feelings. Um, yeah, like but... even the even the dialogue 
like they're, they're really they, they both really drop their own they're not faking it in that moment where they're just, mm-hmm. they're just two kids that don't have the vocabulary or like term you know but they just are just like asking very basic questions i don't know yeah it was it was exactly. amazing yeah. Um, it's, it, it becomes sort of medical in a way because it's and me- medical and mechanical because they're trying to figure it out. So they're, they're like, they're saying things in a way that like, like describing what a French kiss is, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And yeah, uh, the very clinical, like you just, yeah. And, and yeah, that's great. There's yeah. a, there's another, there is a, like just kind of flipping through takes of the movie or reviews of like how, whether or not these two, like the the otherness that they sense in each other they're almost like co like two kids exploring this world together and mm-hmm. like is this romantic love you know because you kind of end the movie wondering like well do how long do these kids make it as like a couple mm-hmm. you know how how, yeah. how long does this fantasy last you know wes anderson believes that they stay together um until basically uh until sam gets drafted into vietnam no. and she inevitably goes to berkeley um, wow just like american graffiti oh, yeah man. she's just like he because he his thought process was basically just like i mean there's no way that he wasn't going to get drafted into vietnam mm. he's like the right age yeah um where he would turn 18 in the mid in the midst of it in the midst of the worst of it um and uh she's Smart enough that, like, yeah, she would go to like Berkeley and, yeah, like, her, you know, both her parents are lawyers, writer. Mm-hmm. right? Right, exactly. Um, and so he was like, yeah, it's not gonna last, but I do, he does believe that it's going to last longer than you probably would think, um, as an adolescent relationship, sure. And, uh, you know, in terms of like the impact they made in each other's lives, is, mm-hmm. exactly, you know. Uh, so, the, exactly. so the next day they get found out, uh, <laughs> Bill Murray like lifts the tent over his head. <laughs> That is him running full speed, like awkwardly at the tent and then zipping it up and him just lifting it over his head is so, oh man, that's some really fun dad energy. That's an energy that you don't see from Bill Murray a lot of like protective dad Mm -hmm. energy. Um, Uh, So it was really fun to see that from him here. You know, it's underrated that he has played a pretty different, distinct character each time that he's worked with Wes Anderson. Yeah. Um, Yeah. In Darjeeling Limited, he played a ghost. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I'll, I'll buy that. I don't. Rem- I, I couldn't trace the ghost logic last week, but like, I, I, I trust you. And like, yeah, and like, Bill Murray's very protective. He's like, you're never going to see that boy again, just so you know. Like, uh, yeah, the little brother's like, you betrayed our family. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> the yeah, Susie's brothers are, are, are they don't get a lot of screen time, but they I think they're pretty underrated characters. Yeah, I had yeah. to look up one of the brothers because he looked so familiar, and then I realized it was uh, Gabe from Eighth Grade, the Whoa. cute little nerdy kid. It's like, we'll share McNuggets. Yeah. I was like, dude, wow. I knew you were going to go on to be somebody. Yeah, he's just, yeah, what very little screen time, very little dialogue, but they somehow yeah. steal every scene that they're in. Wow. Time is so crazy because, like, how old is <laughs> how old is Gabe? I think I is losing his mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah anyway or maybe i'm just getting old maybe that's just what maybe that's what <laughs> i know <laughs> so uh yeah you know reality comes crashing down there Susie's back at the house uh we meet social services played by tilda swinton um one of my favorite uh moments is when like both sharp and uh ward leap into <laughs> sam's defense <laughs> As to like who stabbed Luke yeah. Hedges. That was the girl. <laughs> the girl did that. 
Uh, and it's and yeah, yeah, that's another moment where like they're all just on the same footing. Like the adults are just as just flailing for some kind of control as the children are, because there's always like yeah. another force above them telling them what to do. Right, right. Yeah, Tilda Swinton is a really interesting character in here. She is very much a. I mean, she's not in it enough to be like a full fledged role doll villain, but she definitely feels like that ilk. Like I can believe her in the world of like um, Matilda. The uh, yeah, Matilda, totally. Yeah, yeah, Ma- Matilda or or uh, well, yeah, I was gonna say the parents and Matilda. So the yeah, witches, I'm Matilda. <laughs> uh, yeah, like there's that there's that hilarious where they cut to like a newspaper clipping of the orphanage that Sam's gonna get sent to, and it looks like a like a gulag. Yeah. Yeah, you hear like marching in the in the sound mix. Yeah, and they got a one Chris. They shared a one Christmas goose <laughs> for <laughs> Christmas dinner. There is yeah, there is a, a, a just a, a playfulness throughout this whole movie that I think was really missing from a lot of his work, even maybe since Bottle Rocket. Mm-hmm. Of he's just having he's just telling a really fun story. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a uh, I, there's something interesting because i would say if i if i could describe phase two wes anderson i mean yes he's more fully in control creatively Mm -hmm. of like every aspect of what he's doing but i think more than anything it's that there's less realism in all of all of his phase two films Mm -hmm. right like i look at Isle of Dogs, Fantastic Mr. Fox, this movie, and Grand Budapest. And there's a lot less realism in those films than everything before that. So this we get this really beautiful scene where uh, Ward takes Sam back to his like mobile home. And we get just like a super realistic scene of a man trying to take care of a boy. Of like he's mm-hmm. the like he's made him like a, a peanut butter sandwich and like one sausage <laughs> that he's sausage. made. And like, yep, that's all that you know he knows how to make. That's that's the best he can do. I love uh, yeah. That. Yeah, it was such a specific choice. Yeah, and it mm-hmm. and it made sense. You're like, of course this is what this guy has to offer. Like it yeah. just yeah, everything about it made sense. The uh he pours he pours Sam a little bit of beer. <laughs> just that kind of act of solidarity. Because yeah, like uh Ward respects Sam and he's like but there's that great line where he's like, I don't have to you you're making good points, but you're twelve, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, and then yeah, it's it's interesting because this back half of the movie, like one, because I think right after this, right, is when the the khaki scouts are like, um, yeah, ah, we we messed up. My, <laughs> I, I've, I've been saying this a lot this episode, but an iconic line that I think about all the time is when it's the one scout and his back is to the camera, and he goes, "Damn us, damn us." <laughs> It's so good because he's like we. He has this moment where he's like, "We've been assholes to Sam for no reason." Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he's a scout. We we're just following what that what that douche Lucas Edges was telling us to do before he got stabbed with lefty scissors. <laughs> and so yeah, we get uh, uh, Moonrise Kingdom mission breakout. This is really fun, and I think my favorite part is when they break him out. Cause they, he's like, he's like, here's what we're going to need. And like, had like with the chicken wire and all of that. <laughs> and you're like, what's all this going to add up to? And then when they, when they break <laughs> him out, they go to break him out and they're like, 
they're like, come on, you can get through here. And, and, and he's like, not without Susie. Without Susie, there's no point. And then they move and then she pokes her head through and you realize they've already saved her. Um, and it's just, it's like this really cute thing where they're like, look, they're on the level now. Yeah. Like they're, they're, oh, and if I'm not mistaken, is the joke that all of most of that material they needed was just to make the fake Susie? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, but we don't get the reveal of the fake Susie until way later. <laughs> they, he, like, describes what they did with it, but he says it so fast that you don't really register it. Right. And then when the, when, the, when the brother goes in asking for his record player and turns on the light and just a doll. Just <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> oh, my God. That's, a, that's yeah. another really underrated line delivery where the brother's like, I want my record player back. Like, he woke up to get yeah. his record player back. <laughs> <laughs> So we learned that the Cax Scouts and Susie are traveling to St. Jackwood Island, mm-hmm. which is, uh, I don't know. How far away did that look? Like, I don't know. Nautical <laughs> miles. Yeah, it's not real. Can, None you, of it's real. can you imagine just knowing how to drive a boat? No. No. Man. I, I do love, there's something, I mean, this is a little bit later, but when... when <laughs> When Schwartzman is opens the sail and just full speed, the boat goes away and then full speed comes back. I'm like, that rules. I wish it actually worked that way. It's like Wind Waker. It, yeah. Oh, man. It was incredible. It, it, it's kind of miraculous how he was just able to like he came out of the I'm sure exhausting process of making Fantastic Mr. Fox and was able to bring that level of meticulousness to live action. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's it it rules. But yeah, though. So we get to the other camp. This is when we're introduced to Harvey Keitel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, f- a um, first time Wes Anderson player. But yeah, he rules in this, and this is like this is some some A grade Harvey Keitel <laughs> again. Another actor who I love when he does comedy, mm-hmm. and he doesn't do it very often. Yeah, the rare Joe. It's yeah. and like oh my god, there's this um, little moment because he's getting like his his like uh, like a haircut or a shave. And he's like the, the the scout that's like reading the letter, and there's this moment where he's like, uh, "Who is this guy anyway?" And the kid goes, "Couldn't say, sir." <laughs> <laughs> like they're like they're all in like the Royal Air Force. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, we- uh, he says, "Who is this bimbo?" <laughs> <laughs> he calls Edward Norton a bimbo. <laughs> uh, we meet cousin Ben, played by Jason Schwartzman, who seems to yeah. I think his job is that he runs the the stand, the item stand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and the chapel. <laughs> yeah, this is like I don't like this could be a video game, you know? <laughs> like I would explore this world. Yeah. Definitely. This uh man, and like the 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 tracking shot where you're meeting cousin Ben, like the kid, the one scout that just zip lines. <laughs> yeah. Or like when he tells them to really think about whether or not they want to get married and, and they, go stand next to the kid on the trampoline yeah. and then they go <laughs> they so stand brilliant. next to the kid who's just doing flips. Amazing <laughs> amazing flips. Oh man. So good. This is a pretty great uh Jason Schwartzman Wes Anderson performance. Yeah. I mean there's no yeah. bad ones, but <laughs> that's true. Um but yeah, it's fun. It's you know, it's it's a it's a cameo, but it's it's He's got a really strong focus for a couple of scenes. Mm-hmm. He has a mustache and, uh, again. Yep. And uh, and he's got the sunglasses, kind of like doing his Tom Cruise thing again <laughs> from Rushmore. Wow. Yeah. He's like an amalgam of Jack and Max Fisher. Yeah. That's yeah. Crazy. Yeah. And he gets to be in the tracking yeah. shot. Yeah. Yeah. They um, get married. <laughs> he's like, this has no, this will not hold up in court. This is not legally binding. 
but it's the thought. That, It'll yeah. mean something to the two <laughs> of you. It can have an emotional effect. <laughs> Which is kind of the movie in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, at least as far Absolutely. as like the two of them, it was whether or not they're like, you know, they're not really married, but emotionally mm-hmm. that one, that one summer in 65, they were. Yeah. Oh man. I'm, I love the moment where it's like, they have to turn back. Like Scott said, like they're just able to like turn around <laughs> Yeah. and they have to turn around because Susie uh, couldn't find her binoculars and the reveal you're seeing Max through the binoculars and then he sees the binoculars and it's Lucas Hedges. Yeah. That's just good filmmaking. That's just that's just good filmmaking. <laughs> that would have been above the poster. Yeah, you heard it here first, folks. That's just good filmmaking. <laughs> so <laughs> the the alarm sounded. I love Alarm Kid. What a fun job that must be <laughs> to get to yeah. crank the alarm. Oh yeah, and uh, all the Boy Scouts chase uh, Sam, and he's like, "Come get me, you bastards!" And then he gets struck by lightning. I have never been more surprised in a movie. I know. I yeah, like in theaters the first time. I think I like yelled or something. (laughs) Yeah, it's a it's a weird effect. Yeah, I think I think everybody. I remember getting a huge reaction of like everyone going being like, "Go!" and then and then. Everyone's sort of laughing at the huge reaction that it <laughs> yeah. got. You know, this. I think. Yeah, I think this is one of his, if not his funniest movie. And it's. I was thinking, there's like an alternate universe where he, instead of making live action movies, Wes Anderson was like he created The Simpsons or something like Peanuts. <laughs> yeah. So the storm finally hits. It's huge. Ed Norton uh, arrives at the other island and is stripped of command. He gets his, and then immediately saves the person who stripped him of command. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that just it feels like something from an animated from a cartoon where like Edward Norton leaps past over the bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with Harvey Keitel on his back, and then the like the cabin explodes. <laughs> oh man! Um, yeah, everyone reconvenes at the church. The uh, the social services arrives. The uh, Sam and Susie are hiding, or they climb up to the steeple of the church. Bruce Willis climbs up with them and Bruce Willis offers to take care of Sam and become his new guardian. And then uh, lightning strikes again and we get that incredible tableau of them like dangling <laughs> and holding on to each other. What was it that changes Tilda Swinton's mind in terms of that? Because originally he, cause he, he put himself out there as mm-hmm. Sam's guardian in the church but it isn't until they're on the roof that she's finally like fine. I think it was the lawyers. Oh, okay. I think yeah. just them like corralling her with legality. Right, right. Of like you have a perfectly fine parent. <laughs> right. and you're requesting to adopt him. You can't put him in a foster home. Right, if you... There's someone that wants yeah, to yeah, get yeah, this guardian. I, I think at one point Francis McDormand said words like like prejudice or like bias like if you if at this point you are deciding not to help a kid because of your personal bias against them right when there is a perfectly you know bruce willis is a a gainfully employed adult yeah um and also this was 65 so who knows what the criteria was (laughs) fostering a kid back then because very true because yeah he does live in a mobile home i bet nowadays he would need to i mean i don't i've heard it's like a brutal process like fostering to to adopt a baby. Oh, a baby. Okay, never yeah. mind. <laughs> to 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 adopt a child. I think it's it's actually fairly easy because nobody wants them because they all want babies for sure. Um, yeah, 
Just like it's just like going. It's just like how nobody adopts those old cats. <laughs> they just want the kittens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh boy, old cats. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, Susie's kitten. Is this the first cat in a Wes Anderson movie? I think so. What ha- yeah. what happens to the kitten? I think the kitten's fine and dandy. We never really see it outside of that one shot. Yeah. And I think I did read somewhere once that I, that Susie, the actress who played her, got to keep the cat afterwards. Aww. That's great. It's like how Viggo Mortensen got to keep his horse in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Fun little yeah, souvenir. That's, yep. that's good. Yeah, I think I think you might be right. I think that might be the only cat. Because I'm trying to even think of another character that would have a cat. I think, and obviously we get we get a cat in the next movie, right? Yeah. Yes, a very famous scene. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> but I think you might be right. This might be the first cat. Um, and then we come to, uh, of course, this being a Wes Anderson movie, recovery from a disaster, uh, na- yes. specifically a natural disaster. This time, uh, we get Bob Balaban kind of telling the story of like the effects of the storm and how it literally like, reshaped the island. <laughs> uh, parts of it sank to the earth. But it resulted in a, an extraordinarily bountiful crop the next autumn, mm-hmm. which is, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's not new territory for him, but it's just such, he's just gotten so much better at telling his kinds of stories that this does become like, yeah, one of his best works. I, and I just love the pure, I love the pure fantasy of it. Um, I think it's so funny that he was being criticism like being criticized for having being too navel gazy with things like life aquatic and Darjeeling limited. And they're like, no, you you've gone too far. And <laughs> his answer is to go even further. <laughs> and then the critics are like, this is great. <laughs> it just goes to show you the critics don't know what they're talking about <laughs> most of the time. Well, you know, like uh, I was thinking there's this album by Taylor Swift uh, lover that, mm. I, I remember when it came out, listening to it and being like, oh, this kind of sounds like the ultimate Taylor Swift album. It has like mm-hmm. everything she's learned and everything that she's tried in other albums is somehow working in her, like, a, like an orchestra in this album. Mm-hmm. And like people really like, you know, at that point, people were like, oh, she's a genius, you know, and getting all these. But I remember when like she kind of went through her period of being a popular artist that was getting maligned a lot, like in the press. And it's like mm-hmm. at a certain point, if you just become even more lean, even further into your what you love or what your obsessions are as an artist. You come back through the black hole again. Yeah. 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 Instead of, instead of, and this is a, this is a really good example. I feel like the opposite of that is Kevin Smith who tries to go out and make a, a movie that is like, you know, like trying to make, please the critics basically and does the opposite and then just kind of gives up, <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, and, yeah. uh, uh, Kevin Smith is definitely a director that Bruce Willis asked about uh, a camera lens. And Kevin Smith was like, I don't fucking care. dude." <laughs> Bruce Willis is like, okay, yep. neither do I. But that's always the downfall. Like the second you make something yeah, try to try to please an audience or please critics instead of just making it for yourself. Like it's, it's never going to be what you want it to be. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because you can never plan on what other people are going to take away from the thing that yeah. you make. Yeah. And that's why I loved yeah. hearing too that this was like independently financed and that this really was like a passion project because now it all makes sense. And like you can feel that. Like you can tell with this film. And I love yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh it was a lovely rewatch for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's so good, and it's and it led to another Oscar nomination. His first since well, Fantastic Mr. Fox was his first since Royal Tenenbaums for Best Animated Feature. Mm. Um, this was his first uh, screenplay nomination mm-hmm. since Royal Tenenbaums, and uh, and then that would only. Right. Uh, grow further with the next film, uh, Grand Budapest Mo- Hotel. Grand Budapest Motel. Most, <laughs> yeah, most <laughs> Motel, movie. which is his, his most successful film of all time. Yeah. Um, which is uh, uh, something else. And I can't wait to talk about all of that um, in next week's episode. Jody. Yeah, Moonrise Kingdom. Incredible. Uh, Jody, what do you think was the biggest like thing that changed the most or surprise for you rewatching uh, Moonrise Kingdom this time? I... That's a great question. I think it just had like a little bit more heart for me because I think the very first time that I saw it, it was I was struck very much by the humor of it. And I was like, oh, that was hilarious. Yeah, this is definitely his funniest film. That was so much fun. And then this time I was like tearing up at the end and like and just like and even the music too, that little like cuckoo song at the end where it's just yeah, perfectly the cuckoo fade out. And like I was just like, oh, my gosh, like it just every everything about the end, it just felt a little sweeter and a little more nostalgic. And I think yeah, just the the emotions of it just hit a little bit harder this time as opposed to just the aesthetics or the comedy of it. Like I just, yeah, I really, I really felt the love between these yeah, sweet little misfits. Yeah. And I think like, as you get older, it's like you have more affection for the innocence of Sam and Susie's love, but then also yeah. more appreciation for like the weatheredness of every adult character. In this movie. <laughs> yeah. Of just like their whole, like these fucking kids <laughs> that they all have. <laughs> Can't you guys just give us a break? <laughs> no, oh, we're in love. I just remembered that it's super early in the movie, but we're like, they find Sam's like oil watercolor paintings and Bill Murray's like, what the fuck am I looking at? And it's like a, <laughs> yes. like a nude that he drew. Jesus Christ. What the fuck am I looking at? <laughs> oh my God. Incredible. <laughs> he, he, try, he paints mostly landscapes, some nudes, some tasteful nudes. Yeah. Tasteful nudes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think the, the thing, too, that I love about the ending is, like, the – I just, like, yeah, the thing that, like, kind of choked me up a little bit was seeing him in the um, island police uniform, yeah. the little mini island police yeah, uniform, yeah. just like his dad. Because you're like, oh, this is a kid who proudly wears a uniform. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, he, he loves that. Um, and he, he feels like it comes with uh, like a sense of importance and a sense of purpose, you know? Well, you know, that's, and- a, that's a key detail, Scott. I never thought about it, but he doesn't take off his khaki scout uniform after he runs away. He keeps it on. Right. Right. And you can tell that there is he doesn't he 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 seems to appreciate parts of the scouts and parts of like Scoutmaster Ward, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think. You know, I, especially in especially in the '60s, I think that there was a lot of comfort that people found in in people in uniforms. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're like, oh well, I can trust this person; they're in a uniform. Right. You know, right. and so so like him being like, you could like, I'm wearing my uniform; like, you can trust me, Susie. Like, let's go on this. I know what I'm doing. You know, yeah. Um, and and having that that sort of comforting thing, but uh, but yeah, I just I loved him in that uniform at the end of the movie. Yeah, that was it, so cute. He's he finally like he was looking for it in the khaki scouts. He couldn't find it with his foster family, but he like created managed to make a world for himself or like a reality for himself that he can feel safe in. Like yeah. shuttling back and forth between Susie's house and Bruce Willis's mobile home. 
another another comparison to him and Max Fisher is the uniform. Yeah. The love of wearing a uniform. Yeah. And 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 the purpose behind that uniform. Max loves being a, a Rushmore student. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's like his identity. Yeah. yeah. And then he has to learn that like that's not what makes him special. And no. that's the same thing with uh with him. I don't know. Eli, it's, yeah, it's, Eli Cash yeah. wants to be a Tannenbaum. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, it's all true. It's all connected. Man. Something <laughs> a lot there. of recurring themes. <laughs> this guy, this, that's just good filmmaking. <laughs> that's, that's just good, good filmmaking. filmmaking. Uh, uh, anyway. Jody, thanks so much um, for being on the show. Heck yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me, you guys. Now I want to yeah. watch Budapest just for the heck of it. <laughs> i got to continue the marathon. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Haven't seen it since uh, theaters. Yeah, it's been a minute. I'm excited to revisit it. Yeah. Um, well, Jody, is there right. anything uh, you'd like to share, like anything you'd like to plug before we sign off? Uh, sure. Why not? Um, so, yeah, I run an Instagram and a Twitter account called Animal Crossing Cinema. Um, it's a page <laughs> where I uh, I post pictures. Uh, so I play Animal Crossing and I like to recreate uh, scenes from some of my favorite films and television shows. Um, and then I post my work on those pages, um, but a lot of it includes Wes Anderson films. I've done Rushmore, I've done Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, and of course, Moonrise Kingdom. Um, so if you like weird, niche, nerdy Animal Crossing art, go check it out. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you think what- they are extremely charming <laughs> to scroll through? Um, I, it's it's just, it, it, it just put an instant smile on my face. So no. if you just want to feel good for a few minutes, just go go and scroll scroll through. Uh, Jody's Animal Crossing creations. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, do you think, it's, it's really fun. Do you think Wes Anderson is aware of Animal Crossing? <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like he's not, and yet it seems like something that would be very much up his alley. He, he se- I, yeah, he, go ahead. Because he seems like a human Animal Crossing character. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, Animal Crossing is like two steps removed from Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> right, that's so, true. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing about it is like, yeah, I think he would love it. But also, like, why would he do that when he gets to <laughs> do it for real, real life? Yeah. Animal Crossing. Exactly. Oh, my God, yeah, I, I play Animal a- Crossing because I don't have $16 million to make a beautiful, charming story. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he gets to, no, I can just, I'll just make a hotel. Good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll build my own <laughs> Or French Dispatch. And, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that's how. That's that's our final destination. Before we get there, we will check in next week at the Grand Budapest Hotel. Indeed. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you very much for listening.